0: Some of you may remember Seth uh, when he was on staff here, and um, we let him go off and do his thing that he felt called to do by God, but we love to have him come back um, as much as possible. So we're really excited to have him here. We're really blessed. So thank you guys for being here with us today. Help me in welcoming Seth. Hello. Thanks, Shana. Well, greetings. How's everybody this morning? Good. Well, Greg uh, called me about a month ago and asked me if I'd be willing to share this morning. And I said yes before I found out the topic, and after I found out the topic, I thought maybe I should have passed. But uh, today we're going to talk about um, subverting the empire. You guys have been working in a Christmas series, and I think the logo itself is an upside down Christmas tree. Um, so we're going to talk about that this morning. Now, the first time I was ever made familiar of the idea of Empire was in the little uh, a three-screen cinema in my house in third grade. Um, I went to see this movie. This movie was about a young blonde uh, actor who finds out that he has these special abilities. He learns these special abilities from this little green monster that has a funny voice. And he gets hooked up with a couple of robots and this rogue pilot of a ship called the Millennium Falcon, and uh, he, uh, he finds out that he's a, a brother to my third grade wife. I've, I was in love with this girl. She was a beautiful princess. She had a hairdo like a couple cinnamon rolls on the sides of her head. Uh, and I, I, I was totally into this movie. So uh, Now these guys are fighting against the evil empire and the evil emperor, this guy with a black plastic head, a really weird breathing pattern. And uh, the most amazing thing to me about him was he had the ability to choke people without touching them. And I thought that was pretty cool. So, now, I was totally into it. We had the, I had the outfit. I had the little lightsaber sword. Um, I even had the record of the soundtrack uh, that I would listen to with my brother. Because then, like, I wanted wanted to fight the evil empire. And uh, I'm 40 years old now, and I I still do. I still want to fight the empire. I, I think it's still worth fighting. But in order to do that, we have to sort of talk about that, because to use a title subverting the empire, there's a couple of big words in there that I actually had to look up in the dictionary, and one of them was subverting. Um, Subverting means to turn something upside down from its very roots. That's going to be important as we keep looking here. So if subverting means to flip something upside down from the foundation or from its roots, then in order to subvert the empire, we have to start thinking about what's, what are the roots of empire? Now, I've heard, uh, I listened to Greg's sermon from two weeks ago and Bruxy's from last week, and I think the thing that can be difficult is it is very easy for me to get up here and tell you that Jesus was born under the Roman Empire, and we can name the emperor, right? We can say Caesar Augustus was a really bad dude, and everyone would agree, yes, that's true. But then it becomes a little more tricky. What does empire mean in our world, in St. Paul, in the United States of America, in 2010? Um, Now, this gets a little tricky. There's a couple things that all empires have in common. Um, One of them is amazing military capability and expansion. So we just would have to ask the question, what nation do we know about that has amazing military capability and bases all over the world? Uh, an economic system that's unrivaled in the world. What, what, what economic system do we find in our world? What political ideas are underneath there? I think as you have a pretty good guess, uh, I would say, and some people here could even disagree with me, I would say that um, rather than looking at the United States of America as a sort of a revolutionary group of people, I think the United States has settled in to feel like an American empire. We have a lot of influence around the world, a lot of power. The thing that gets hard about it, though, is we don't have an emperor. I don't think anyone would say that Barack Obama is the supreme commander of the world. And so it gets to be a little difficult to say, who's the evil empire? Who's Darth Vader that we're trying to fight against and take down? And to me, the challenge is that we live in a democracy. And so, actually, um, if you were to ask me what I would say, is the evil emperor in America is you and me. We vote, right? We shop. We wield power. Um, and in some ways, it's the wielding of that power, it's the way that human beings interact with each other that causes the kind of pain and evil that happens in our world. It'd be much easier if we had a supreme commander to blame. Now, there's a couple things that we would have to talk about if we're going to get to the root of the empire, right? What, if we're going to flip it over from its foundation, what's at the foundation of empire? Here's a couple of words that are pretty important um, in America, both in our stories and in our day-to-day living. One of them is freedom. You can't hardly talk about America without freedom. But what does America mean when it says freedom? What does the empire mean when it says freedom? I would say that it means the freedom to do what it is that you want to, right? The thing as Americans that we detest and can't stand is if anyone is going to impede my rights and my own freedoms. At the empire, we'll talk about peace and Often, even in its best, what peace means is just the absence of conflict, that we're going to tolerate each other or not fight each other. We talk about justice in the empire. that means that people who do bad things get what they deserve. When we talk about love, what we can mean in the empire is the self-gratification that comes from romance or sexuality. So does Jesus, when he comes on the scene, does he use these words, and does he use them differently? Now, uh, I'm I'm the pastor of a small community uh, of folks a bunch of us met here at Woodland, and we live over in the university corridor. Um, And to be honest, sometimes it's a struggle to be a Christian and to talk to people that aren't Christians about Jesus, because so many times they have all these weird pictures about what being a Christian is. And so I got most comfortable very often talking to people in my neighborhood, and I found out that in my neighborhood, the phrase peace and justice is a really good idea, that, that people generally like that. I don't find many people in my neighborhood that aren't interested in peace and justice. And so sometimes I can feel like when I talk to my neighbors, when I say peace and justice and when they say peace and justice, we mean the same things. But the reality is that we really don't. That the kind of peace that I'm talking about that Jesus brings isn't just an absence of conflict. It's a reconciliation that leads to a relationship of love. That's different. When I talk about justice, I'm not talking about that bad people get what they deserve. I'm um, I'm imagining a world where the way of Jesus and the kind of life that God lays out for human beings is the kind of life that we all live. When Jesus talks about freedom, he's not talking about your own personal ability to pursue what you want. I think Jesus' talk about freedom is your ability to be free from the things that you want most. When Jesus talks about love, he doesn't talk about a self-fulfilling love. He talks about a self-sacrificial kind of a love. So Jesus, right away, when he starts teaching and uses words like freedom and peace and justice and love, he doesn't mean the same thing that the empire means. See, oftentimes when we read the Bible, we can look at the teachings of Jesus and say, people generally agree with this. I talk to people all the time, and even though people might not like Christianity, I think everyone in general feels like Jesus was a pretty good guy. The problem is, you don't get crucified for teaching about ideas that everyone already generally agrees with. And we have to remember that the kind of things that Jesus taught about didn't lead to a parade down the street. Uh, The kind of things that Jesus taught about, the kind of ways that Jesus lived, led to him being killed. And when we think about his birth and we celebrate Christmas, we can't sort of try to pull that story out as if it's this cute story of shepherds and angels, and that's not what it is. This is the opening chapter of a story that's going to lead to the hero's death, but eventually to his resurrection. Okay, let's open up. We're actually going to look in the book of Colossians. I figured people might be a little tired of Luke, so I figured we could find subversion somewhere else here because actually uh, lots of people say this whole book is a book that just describes subversive activity. Um, Colossians, let's turn to chapter 1, and I'm going to start out at verse 15. But before we jump in there, um, let me just say, sometimes, especially with the New Testament letters, I have a little bit of a hard time hearing them with the weight that they deserve. Because in general, I often feel like A book of Colossians can't really be subversive because everyone sort of already knows it or everyone's already read it. Generally, our society agrees with the ideas that are in here. But that's really changing. Um, I know there's a book I'm reading now by a couple of authors, and they talk about how in their neighborhood in South Carolina, they realized the day the world changed was the day that their Fox Theater in their neighborhood opened up for business on Sunday night. Because up to this point, the theater would never be open on Sunday night because that was a what? It's a church night. Um, Well, it seems in our society that there's not much concern anymore for what night is a church night and what night isn't, right? That in general, we're starting to recover the idea that we, we don't live in a society that's generally Christian or that everyone generally agrees with. We, as people who follow Jesus in America, are realizing more and more there's a distance and a difference between the way that we see Jesus the ways that we live, and the ways our general society lives. Not only is it different, I think my sense is that it's growing more and more hostile. It's getting more and more difficult to follow a subversive king in a society where people basically want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when we read Colossians, we have to remember, not only are these letters saying nice things about Jesus, they're saying things that are actually really damaging to the major social Uh, norms of of that day. So let's pull this out and see if we can read a couple of these, okay? Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It's talking about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, of course, if you're a Roman person living in Colossae, where this letter was written, right away you know something's happening here, because you've heard all of your life that Caesar is the image of the invisible God, He's the, son, or he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Caesar didn't create these things, Jesus did. Things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Not for Caesar. Caesar isn't before all things, Jesus is. And in him all things hold together. This is very important. The empire doesn't hold the world together as much as they want to tell you that they do. Jesus holds all things together. Here's where it takes a slight turn. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, Caesar is the head of the empire. The empire is a certain way of relating, a certain way of being in the world. You get on their page, otherwise you suffer. Jesus here doesn't claim to be in charge of the empire. He claims to be above it, But Jesus isn't the head of the empire. Jesus is the head of what? The church. His body. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, not in Caesar, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. Now Caesar knew how to make peace. Right? If you swing the biggest sword, then you can get people to shut up and do what you want. It's peace through violence. How does Jesus accomplish peace? Making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Caesar rules the empire. What you might say is Caesar rules the world. But Jesus rules the church, it's his body. Not only is Jesus subverting the empire, but if Jesus is subverting the empire and we are his body, then don't we have a calling to do a similar thing? This is where I want to say, let's pull out our lightsabers and start fighting the evil emperor. I hear often hear Christians talk about Jesus came to change the world, and I would sort of push on that a little bit. I don't think Jesus came to change the world. I think the world ended and started over in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, And that's a subtle difference. I don't think Jesus calls us to come help slightly change the world, to spend time and effort and energy to make the world a little less violent, to make war a little less bloody, to make our society a little bit less greedy. I think Jesus came, lived, taught, and died so that a new world could get started. The church is the place where this new world is alive and growing. And the ridiculous, and these are ridiculous claims the Bible makes. The Bible claims that the empire has already been defeated by Jesus, and it's dying a slow death. I don't know about you, it's hard to look around our world and imagine that this world is dead and dying, and that this other world is emerging, the one where Jesus is president. But it does then, you do have to think about uh, if this world is dead and dying, if the forces of consumerism and violence and greed, if those things are dead and dying, then we can't give him too much credit, right? So if we're supposed to participate in the subversion, how, how do we do that? Um, one of my favorite authors, a guy named Eugene Peterson, some of you guys might have heard of him, he actually wrote the Message Bible. In one of his books, he tells a, a story about him being a kid that I related to because he said that he was picked on, and I was picked on too when I was younger. Uh, in grade school, probably all of us were. And uh, he said there was this one kid who seemed like within the first week of school, he was searching for somebody to pick on, and he finally picked Eugene Peterson, and every day at school he would get beat up. So now Eugene was a good Christian boy where his parents taught him to turn the other cheek um, and to be a peacemaker, and so for about three-quarters of the year, he just got his butt kicked every day. And then finally he just said, as if something snapped one day, I just couldn't take it anymore and I grabbed hold of this kid and he said to my surprise I was actually stronger than him so I threw him to the ground and I started punching him and I punched him in the nose and blood out on the snow and I punched him again and then something clicked in while he's on top of this boy and he says tell me that you believe in Jesus right now or I'm going to punch you in the face the kid (laughs) says no punches him in the face again tell me you believe in Jesus right now Uh, finally he gets off the kid and goes home and feels really bad about it. On one hand, it makes me feel really good because the author of the message Bible screws up, and so do I. On the other hand, it reminds me, like, maybe that's the way that we're supposed to be in the world, right? Maybe we should just jump on top of people. <laughs> jump on top of the empire of consumerism and just punch it in the face and say, tell us you believe in Jesus. The problem is the ends don't justify the means, right? Because isn't, wouldn't that just be using the very... Using the empire's way of being in the world to try to change it. Okay, so Colossians chapter 3. We're just going to flip over a couple verses here. Paul, writing here, starts to give us the formula. Like, okay, here's what your subversive revolution is going to look like. It's going to be inspiring, right? It's going to change the world. Here we go, verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ. See, remember I said it's not about changing the world. The world started over. Like you started over. At some point when you said Jesus is Lord, your old life is dead. This is the point of baptism. Your old life is dead. You're part of the new world now. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, sometimes when we think of set your, your hearts on things above, what we can think of is like this place with clouds and angels floating around that's totally disconnected from this world. And I don't really read it that way. I think what he's saying is like, even though Caesar is the empire in charge of this world, in chapter 1, he already said that Christ is supreme over all those things. So don't think about some alternate universe. Think about the power and authority that live above the power and authority of this world. Start thinking about the world in that way. Get your head on straight. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. In the empires of this world, there's a certain mindset. There's a way of getting about in the world. And he says, stop thinking like that. That world is dying. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, here comes the subversion, right? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So the way that you've learned to live within this empire, you're going to have to start to... Paul starts to say, you've got to kill yourself. You have to kill your sexual immorality and your impurity and your lust." And your evil desires. And your greed. But You want to talk about getting to the foundation of empire? If you start killing the greed that's in you. Because that greed is idolatry. Because of these things, God is frustrated. The wrath of God is coming. He doesn't like idolatry. He doesn't like greed. You used to walk in these ways. In the life you once lived. But now you have to rid yourselves of all these kind of things. Listen to how terrible this list is, right? Anger. Like, here's the menu for revolutionary change. Stop being angry. Malice and slander. Stop being mean to people. But wait, Jesus, I want to take out my lightsaber and break something. No, don't be angry. Stop being mean to people. And the filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other, just tell the truth. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jewish person. Right, in the empire it's very important to understand who's in and who's out. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, there's no barbarians, I don't know how to say that next word, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. And since you're God's chosen people, remember that you're holy and dearly loved. Empire doesn't love you, but your Father does. So here's what you should do you should wrap yourself up, clothe yourself like a gift with compassion. Here's a revolution, right? We want to change the world? Show compassion. Like be kind, be humble, be gentle and patient. I mean, add those things all up and what do they say? They say, give your power away. If you want to undermine the empire, give up your power. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone... Forgive him as the Lord forgave you. The empire doesn't forgive. The empire remembers always and is ruthless. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. These things are the opposition of empire. They directly oppose it. But the thing is, you can't actually really be subversive. You can't wake up one day like I want to and say, I'm going to be subversive today. You can't do it. You can't subvert the empire. The only thing that you can do is follow Jesus, who already subverted the empire. So, subverting the empire isn't something that you try to do, it's something that you have to do if you're willing to be obedient and faithful. Okay, and that all sounds really nice, but let's be honest. This is hard to, I think this is hard to hear. I'm an activist person, and so I, like, I want to go light the Mall of America on fire and say, Jesus hates the Mall of America. I, I, see, I got some witnesses here. All right. um, like, those things frustrate me and make me angry. When I see racism and hatred, I get angry. When I see poverty, it makes me frustrated. And like, I, I'm not patient. I, like, I want the world to change right now. And on the other hand, I also, one of the greatest tools that the empire has over us is hopelessness. We all wake up and feel like the world's never going to change. When are we going to stop seeing hunger? When are we going to stop seeing war? And one of the hardest things about it is it's Christmas time. Christmas is a double whammy for me. Because number one, Christmas brings up all kinds of nostalgia for me. I was raised in a good home that was based on empire. And so we had all kinds of, I mean, we gave gifts. Okay, I'm not, we'll get here in a minute. I'm not saying don't give gifts, I'm saying why it's hard for me. We made eggnog. It's funny because I grew up in Southern California, and you'd think that people in California don't really know how to celebrate Christmas because it never snows. But we did. The best part about it is when you got a new bike or a toy, you could actually go out and play with it. That was awesome. I have all this nostalgia around Christmas, my grandparents being there. Do you know what I mean? Like, Christmas comes around and you feel something. And so I get pulled because I have this nostalgia. I want my kids to experience the same kind of Christmas that I did. On the other hand, Christmas is the high holiday of the empire, right? I mean, I'll never forget, um, after the September 11th attacks, President George Bush got on the screen and he told us... uh, we can't let the terrorists win, right? So here's what you all need to do. Some of you might remember this. The main thing Americans need to do to not let the terrorists win is go out and shop. That will tell them that they haven't beat us. Um, And Christmas time is the empire's high holiday, right? Um, So how do you celebrate Christmas and not give in to greed and consumerism? This is a tricky line there. How do you celebrate the birth of the one who has ended the world and started it again without, like, being Scrooge to your kids? Um, It's difficult. And at the same time, it can seem a little unrealistic. Now, Advent is a season, I don't... I grew up in a liturgical church, a Presbyterian church, and so each Advent week is, we would light a different candle. Like in my house we had an Advent calendar and you'd open up a different one. Like the whole idea is there should be a systematic way as God's people during this season that we remember the story and relive it. Because, I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they start telling the Jesus story, the challenge is it's been 300 years since God's spoken to his people. So 300 years, how many generations of that would there be where people didn't hear from God? Where they were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. This is the season of Christmas, is waiting. Which is important for us because we're waiting. I want to overthrow the empire today, but it's already been overthrown. And so what are we doing? We're waiting and being faithful and waiting and praying and waiting and practicing patience. But faith and patience and prayer and waiting, these are not skill sets that the empire teaches or values. That's why a lot of Americans aren't really good at it. Right? Are you good at waiting in line? I'm not. You stand in line at the grocery store, you know the self-checkout lane, and you're trying to figure out how to which lane is going to go the fastest and then you get behind a person and you think it's going to be a good decision and they get up to the thing and they can't figure out how to scan the thing and then they get one thing wrong because they put something in the bag area before it was time for it to be in the bag area and then the red light goes off and then the lady has to come over and the whole time you're just saying bad words in your head. Or if you get to scam somebody and you get to jump in front and get out. Like, And then when you get up there, now there's pressure because there's people watching you. And you're going to show these people, this is how you do self-checkout, people. 30 seconds and I'm out. Because we're not patient. We don't like to wait. But there's another part, which is sometimes I just can't believe this story. This Advent story seems a little ridiculous. In fact... I grew up thinking that the Christian story is very normal and that everyone should believe it. And the longer I study it, the more I realize. I don't really um I understand why people don't believe it, because it's ridiculous. That this weird Jewish carpenter who lived thousands of years ago by teaching and being gentle and loving people and then getting murdered by the state. Uh that this character has apparently ended the world and started it again and someday is going to return and change everything to the way that he wants it? There's there's a reason why people think Christians are weird. It's a weird story. But it takes faith. Faith. Not the kind of faith that sort of hopes and prays that you're going to win the lottery someday or that the Vikings are going to turn their season around. That's not faith. That's stupidity, right? That's not going to happen. But the kind of faith that hopes for something better than what we see today. The kind of faith that hears this voice from the Father in Jesus and says, I believe that. And we can never separate the word faith from being faithful because if you believe it, if you believe that Jesus is going to return, if you believe that Jesus has overthrown the empire, then to have faith means to be faithful to that idea. To not sink down to the skill sets of the empire, but to be willing to live up to the skill sets of the kingdom of heaven. To practice patience. To clothe yourself with compassion. To be gentle and kind and humble. And every time we do that, another little crack breaks open in the foundation of the empire that holds this world captive. Okay, I am going to read something out of Luke because I have to. It's a prerequisite. And we read it last week, and I don't think you can read it enough during this season. It's Luke chapter 1. It's the beautiful poem that Mary sings about the birth of the one who's going to change the world and save it, start it over. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy. The empire doesn't have any mercy. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, he has scattered those who are proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. Again, look around the world. Is this what we see? It takes faith. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped us serve in Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. To be God's people, to be faithful in this season of Advent to subvert the empire is to be faithful to the ideals of the kingdom and their king. To pray in the same way that Jesus did Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, you're amazing. I want to be faithful to you. We pray for the kingdom of come, for the kingdom to come. We don't make it come, we don't force it to come. During this Christmas season, I think my prayers for you, for me, and my own family is that we find a way to celebrate that subversive, not, not from protesting, not from being angry. Anger isn't the kingdom of God. But by clothing ourselves in compassion and humility and patience, kindness and gentleness, that we learn how to be anti-empire people, not by rebelling against the empire, but by living into the kingdom of God, by following Jesus who has already subverted the empire. Would you close in prayer with me? Jesus, this is your season, Advent. A season that your people thousands of years ago waited in expectation for you. And a season where your followers now are waiting thousands of years for your return. For you to set the world right. Pray that you'd give us the kind of skills that we need that you would give us the kind of gifts that lead to the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. Give us the strength by your Spirit to be faithful people, faithful to your teaching, faithful to your way of life. Put us in communities with brothers and sisters who will challenge and encourage and correct us to walk away from greed, which is idolatry, and move towards a life that's filled with generosity Pray during this season that in homes and in communities all over Woodland Hills and St. Paul, there would be meaningful celebrations of your birth that look like the kingdom. Give us the discipline and self-control not to be swept down the tidal wave of consumerism during this season. Help us celebrate in a way that says, Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. In your name we pray. Amen. Before we dismiss it, I just want to invite the prayer team to come down. Um, There's lots to pray about here. To pray about um, things that you're personally going through right now. Things that are burdens that are too heavy for you to carry by yourself. Uh, The prayers that bring about the skills of patience and gentleness and kindness. Those aren't things that we produce by our own effort. These are things that the Spirit leads and guides us into. Um, So the prayer team is going to be up here to pray. Uh, Thanks for braving the snow, snowpocalypse 2010, and uh, I pray for safety and for peace as you celebrate the season. Thanks for listening. Good morning.